The American History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 14, Texas, Part 2. Welcome to the American History Podcast. Hosted by Sean Morswick. So welcome back. Um, we're moving right along with season two. Before we get started, as always, let me remind you, um, feel free to email me. The email is sean at theamericanhistorypodcast.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at AmericanHisCast. Feel free to send any comments or questions to either one, although it's probably easier to email them to me. I will respond to any and all email. Also, if you enjoy the show, please go over to iTunes and leave either a rating or a review. I admit I have been remiss, but if you do leave a review, I will give you a shout-out on the show. Um, And I'm going to start catching up right now. So the first five people who left reviews all gave us five stars, and I thank you for that. Let me first thank listener MWT131 for a wonderful review. I'm glad that you're finding the show well done, and um, I do try my best. The second review was I am Sam. Again, um, I am Sam CK. Sorry, again another five star review, and I thank you for that. Third is I feel bad for Paul. Interesting name these guys have. Uh, I'm so happy that uh, I've been able to dispel the numerous myths in American history for Paul here, and I hope um, that he's still listening and enjoying the show. And hopefully, um, nobody's feeling bad for him now. And finally, we have Pizza Fan One Thousand. Again, thank you very much, Pizza Fan, for what it is worth. I'm also a Pizza Fan. And um, I'm going to give one more shout-out. This one is from uh, Davey Crockett. No relation, I'm sure, to his famous namesake, who listens to us while he works out. Thank you, Davey, and keep up the good work with your mental and physical workouts. Um, Funny story, but actually I know Davey personally, as he was one of my students well over a decade ago. Although when I taught him, it was geography and U.S. government, not um, not U.S. history. So this is his chance to have me as his history teacher. So thank you, Davey, for listening, and keep up the good work. All right. Next time, we'll have uh, some more shout-outs to our reviewers. Also, before we get started, if you are an Amazon shopper and you want to help the show out, um, please enter Amazon through the links on our website. All of the sources I've posted for both Season 1 and 2 are linked. So if you click on one of them, it takes you directly to Amazon, and we get a kickback, even if you don't actually buy that product. Um, You just go and through there, end up purchasing something else. We're good to go. We get a little bit of Jeff Bezos' money. All right, enough about money and finances and all that stuff, so on with the show. Now, in the last episode, we looked at Texas pretty much up to 1820. We also discussed the real power in the region, the Indian tribes. Today, we will pick up with the last actions taken by Spain and go forward through the 1820s. We are also going to discuss what some refer to as the Texas Creed, or the mindset of the people who settled the province. Now first, though we're not quite finished with the natives. We left off last time with the delicate peace between the Indians and the Spanish collapsing at the time Mexico gained independence. In the 1820s, the Comanches and their allies, the Kiowa, began raiding, uh, riding 
in large groups out of the Great Plains to harass the European colonists living in New Mexico and Texas. Known amongst Spanish speakers variously as Indios Bárbaros uh, Salvajes, uh, Gentiles, or Naciones Errantes, these tribes uh, would be a major issue for Mexico in the years prior to the war with the United States. As the Mexican, Mexican period wears on, the raids on the frontier become almost incidental because these Indians strike deeper into the rich northern Mexican states, such as Coahuila, uh, Nuevo León, and Chihuahua. The Texas independence movement is only going to make matters worse. The war, combined with the push west by Anglo-Americans, prompted a southward thrust by the Comanches. They raided further and further south, until, in the 1840s, they were going as far south as Zacatecas, which is nearly 500 miles south of the Rio Grande. And, on at least one occasion, there are reports of Querétaro, only 150 miles away from Mexico City itself, being raided. Now, the Comanches are not the only ones who were emboldened by Mexican military weakness. Apaches, based out of strongholds in Arizona, New Mexico, and West Texas, also swept southwards. These bands were known to Mexicans as Coyoteros and Gileños, whereas the Comanche and the Kiowa raided Mexico on a path that took them south through Texas. The natives known to Mexicans as Coyoteros ranged along the Pacific slope of the Sierra Madre, striking um, down into Sonora. Other groups known as Mogollones crossed the Sierra and raided down into Chihuahua and Durango. Chihuahua was also raided by the Mescalero Apache, who lived east of El Paso, while further east um, around the Big Bend area, the Mescalero were adjoined by the Lipan Apache to strike deep into Chihuahua and Coahuila. So it's easy to see the raids as being conducted by all of the tribes who made up, for example, the Comanche Empire. But this is not the case. Again, historian David J. Weber, whom I believe I mentioned in the last episode, notes that neither the Apache nor the Comanche had a centralized political structure or functioned as a single unit. There was no nation, as we understand it, even though the Spanish, and later the Mexicans, and even the Americans, referred to them as nations. To quote from Weber, who himself was quoting a veteran of the wars, quote, Each family forms a rancheria, a community, who all live independently of one another without recognizing a government. Hence, war with this horde of savages never has ceased for one day, because even when 30 rancherias are at peace, the rest of them are not. Thus, a settlement in Texas might be enjoying harmonious relations with one group of, say, Apaches, while at the same time, their livestock is being plundered by members of another band, or even younger members of the same band, who are trying to establish themselves, something we talked about in the previous episode. Mexican officials had a devil of a time sorting out who was in this situation, and their inability to do so, and their tendency to simply see them all as barbarians, would have long-standing implications for them and the region. By the eve of the war with the United States, the Comanches and the Apaches had created a situation in what would become the American Southwest, in which a climate of fear and pessimism for their future was the rule. Further, you should be aware that the Americans themselves were also aware of the inability of the Mexican government to deal with the situation. It was this inability to deal with the Indians which would fuel the American desire to, quote, save the region, end quote, from Mexicans, whom they viewed as backward, since they, the Mexicans, could not handle the natives. 
Now, this is a major point, and I want you to be aware of it. Part of what the Americans felt they were doing when they took the future states of Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, California, and parts of what would become Nevada, Utah, and Colorado from Mexico was, in the eyes of the Americans, saving the land from the backward Mexicans, whom they accused of turning back the clock on history. Remember, losing a war to native peoples was just something that was not done. Europeans and their descendants were supposed to be civilizing, and they were not supposed to lose wars to barbaric peoples, in the words of the people of the time, not my words. I think at this point, a quote is appropriate. Quote, where others send invading armies, the North Americans send their colonists, end quote. Lucas Alaman, Mexico City, circa 1830. Another quote is also appropriate, and this one is from the Argentine political theorist Juan Batista Alberdi, who said that to govern is to populate. Rapid population growth on the frontier regions appeared to be the solution to the problem as early as 1819, what with the western flank threatened by another land-hungry empire, the Russians, and then, of course, on the east, you had the Anglo-American menace, and, as we just discussed, the bands of autonomous nomads who continually raided not only the frontier provinces, but also the provinces deep into Mexico. By 1820, it appeared the traditional institutions used to settle the frontier, the mission and the presidio, were outdated. An influx of colonists appeared to be the only hope for the defense and development of the frontier, but those colonists would have to come from outside of Mexico. This is for several reasons. First, there was the erroneous belief in Mexico that Mexicans did not possess the character suitable for colonization. If that were the case, then how did Mexico survive as a Spanish colony for three centuries? Another reason is the second one. When one looks at Mexico itself, it was sparsely populated, containing only about 6 million inhabitants. Further, the nation had lost approximately 10% of the population in the decade of war and violence that preceded independence. Thus, the first, first the Spanish, and then the Mexicans, convinced themselves the best route to take was to encourage foreigners to come in and colonize the northern territories. Foreigners, skilled and industrious, possessing the skills and desire to promote economic growth, as well as the manpower needed to defend the territory appeared to be the way to go. Foreigners also had capital and management skills needed to replace the well-to-do Spaniards who had left the country during the war years and in the 1820s. Finally, some Mexican leaders argued that all one needed for evidence of the benefits of foreigners as colonists could be found in studying the United States. In the three decades from 1790 through 1820, the population of the United States had more than doubled, from 4 million to almost 10 million people. Furthermore, the United States had gone from a newly independent collection of states to a union of some political stability, one which might have lost the battles in their recent war against Great Britain, but it was also one which had come out of that war in a better position than it had been going into that conflict. Um, in the concluding battle of that war, the United States Army had given the British a good spanking, so to speak, and that must have had some effect on the way the United States was viewed amongst its contemporaries. Now, another argument put forward by the pro-foreign colonist leaders of Mexico was one that did make sense. They argued that Mexico, with its benign climate and abundant natural resources, would surely be able to attract at least as many foreign settlers as the United States, if not more. And it did make sense, I agree, but there was a danger here. 
And it's a question that even the United States had to wrestle with. And if you've been paying attention to the news lately, it is one which we're still arguing about today. That question is how do you assimilate foreigners into your nation and at the same time attract them? In the end, this would be extremely problematic in the far north, as many of these foreign settlers would come from none other than the United States. Now, the idea of opening Mexico up to foreign settlement was one which represented a break from traditional Spanish policy. Unlike the British, the Spanish had excluded foreigners from settling in her American empire, and instead relied upon two sources of population, indigenous peoples who were to be acculturated and Spaniards who were to multiply and people the continent. When one looks at the results, the Spanish had done remarkably well, as Spain itself had a tiny population. Remember, the Spaniards were the foundation of this policy, as they were to be the models for the Indians, without whom the latter would not be able to assimilate into Spanish society. Now, this was dangerous, and the reason it was is based on culture. Now, there are different definitions of culture, but the best one I've come across defines the word as, quote, the habits, customs, language, religion, values, art, traditions, and institutions of a people, end quote. The Anglo-Americans shared similar religion, language, values, and traditions, that's for sure. They also shared institutions and habits. If they were moving into a region, why would they adopt the culture of another group if, within a few years, they, the Anglos, would be the dominant group? The Anglos were Protestant. They spoke English. They believed in local control, not central control. They did not believe in big government. Oh, and their culture said that they had the right to fight tyranny. Remember, the Declaration of Independence asserts the right to revolution. Now, one more thing about the culture of these folks. Remember, the South was made up of Cavalier culture and Celtic culture. And the Cavaliers don't really concern us here. It's the Celts that are important to this story. I kind of brushed over this quickly when uh, we discussed the South in Season 1, so I want to reiterate it here for those who have either forgotten or didn't listen to Season 1. The Celtic peoples led an impoverished life on the frontier, and they were violent. This was a society of masculine warriors and workers. They definitely worked hard. They, like the Cavaliers, believed in personal freedoms and limited government, and they were highly suspicious of organized religion. So you can imagine what they thought of the Catholic Church. Some of the famous Americans who came out of this culture were Andrew Jackson, Daniel Boone, and Davy Crockett. As I said in that previous episode, if you are truly interested in this, go read David Hackett Fisher's book titled Albion Seed. So keep this in mind as we move forward. Culture is important, so please don't simply dismiss it. That brings us to the people who came to Texas under the new policy adopted first by the Spanish and then by the Mexican government. Historian Gary Clayton Anderson, in his book titled The Conquest of Texas, Ethnic Cleansing in the Promised Land, 1823-1875, notes that the pioneers who came to Texas often first came in through the town of Nacogdoches, near the border with, between Texas and Louisiana. Here, they encountered homes inhabited by Tejano families, some of whom made a profit from the incoming migration by opening their homes to travelers and offering them food and lodging. The Anglos referred to the Tejanos as Creoles in light of their European lineage. Some of these Creoles ran what were called public houses, where homemade whiskey and cheap wine could be purchased for a few cents a glass. The town most likely seemed quite strange to the Anglo settlers, 
as was occupied by a small number of Creoles who sat on top of the social ladder, followed by and outnumbered in every respect by people of color. Indians lounged in groups on the street corners and in the evening entertained the local citizenry by playing lacrosse. There were also Mexicans, some of whom were soldiers, and some of whom were government officials as well as settlers and traders. What the people did not, what the local people did not know, and could not know, was that they were being invaded by people who thought themselves superior to the locals in every way. The letters, diaries, journals, all of this shows that the Anglo interlopers looked down upon those whom they judged as being less accomplished. Their criticisms were most heavily directed towards dark-skinned Mexican soldiers and the Indians. The Anglos also believed they possessed superior institutions, political systems they believed to be democratic, the Protestant religion, and of course, a certainty of the exceptionalism of the Anglo race, the idea that such ordained, such an ordained race could do nothing wrong. Finally, out of this would evolve the Texas Creed and its foundational principle. Anglos were justified in using violence to create and sustain Anglo dominance over this territory. Now, the importance of Nacogdoches is the fact that it represented the cultural and demographic reality of Texas. All three major groups were represented in the town, Anglos, Mexicans, and American Indians, all of whom played a major role in the history of the state and all of whom had a sense of nationhood. Each group also contained subgroups and factions that sometimes went against the grain of nationhood found in the larger group. One group which should be mentioned and has already been brought up is the Tejanos. They had a better sense of cultural identity than, say, the Mexicans in the state, but class issues were a problem for, for them. Some were poor peasants, while others were elites who lived by the old Spanish class system. Others fell in between. Again, referring to Anderson, the problem for them is they lacked the authority and the manpower to rule over the land. They were too small in number to make much of a difference. The Anglos, on the other hand, possessed the clearest sense of identity, which would give them the upper hand when it came to who controlled the land. Whereas the Tejanos might debate issues of where one stood in society, the Anglos instead argued over issues such as the allocation of land, taxes, and law and order. Now having said that, Anglos in Texas were divided. Some came from the American South, while others came from the lower American states. Anglos in Texas would find themselves at odds with the Americans who started to occupy the Indian Territory, which sat in the north of the province, as well as, at least after it became a state, the U.S. Army, which attempted to halt the violence in Texas. It is the histor historical evolution of these differences, especially the differences between Texans and Americans, which had a clear and distinct effect on shaping the identity of Texans, and has repercussions even down into our current time period. Now, one more thing about identity. Again, referring to historian Gary Anderson, he states, quote, one of the shortfalls of most Texas history, then, is the belief that some sense of commonality existed within each of these three cultures, that the story of Texas is a simple one in which Indians fought Texans and Mexicans quietly receded into the background, end quote. The reality, of course, is much more complicated. There is a dramatic mobility within and among all three of the major cultural groups as land changed hands and conflict ebbed and flowed. Identity was in some cases fluid, depending on who had the upper hand. 
Now, something else which is important and helps to explain Texans today, and that's the Anglo community in the state, slowly evolves and it comes to see itself as standing apart from the American culture from which it was born. Soon, Anglos in Texas began calling themselves Texians, a term which denoted their struggle to forge a new identity, no matter what state they had originally come from. Certainly, they were different from those Americans who lived north of the Mason-Dixon line, and many of the early people came from a background in southern agriculture, which gave them experience in taming the land. They were also most certainly an independent lot, especially the women, most of whom learned how to use a gun at a young age, and, while they might have feared Indians, they had a strong survival instinct, which made them formidable opponents. The history of all of these people was driven by an evolving notion of race that existed in North America during the early 19th century. The Conos originally saw Anglo-Americans as progressive and forward-looking, and many of the early Anglo-Texans respected Tejano traditions and even married into some of the leading Tejano families. The Anglos also, much to my own surprise, got on well initially with many of the Indian bands. However, the attitudes of the Anglos evolved over time, especially as they became demographically stronger. They slowly became less tolerant of other groups. Before I go on, let me say, this is about race at this point. Saying X or Y group was racist um, really doesn't help distinguish anything or answer any questions in that everyone at this point was racist in 19th century in the world. Americans, racist. Englishmen, racist. Mexicans, Spaniards, Russians, racist. Each and every one of them. Okay, so just, you know, if we... We're going to call them racist. Yes, they were, but that doesn't really help us distinguish anything about them. Okay, now the most ironic aspect of all of this is that many Tejanos, if not a majority of them, most likely supported the Texas Revolution, or at least remained neutral. Members of some of the elite Tejano families even fought alongside Texans at the Alamo and the Battle of San Jacinto, because they were, at the end of the day, liberals, and I mean liberals like Thomas Jefferson, not liberals like Barack Obama or Bill Clinton, um, they saw the move for independence as hearkening to local control over federal meddling. These liberal Tejanos also, surprisingly, found support for their cause in the communities of northern Mexico, such as Saltillo and Monclova, just to name a few. However, sadly, Tejanos would eventually discover that their support did little to protect them from the aggressive invaders. Some Tejanos, as soon as the late 1830s, started losing their lands in and around Goliad. Many more would lose land and property in the aftermath of the war between the United States and Mexico when they were charged with disloyalty by Anglo-Texans. Part of the problem for the Tejanos lay in their inability to defend themselves against the Indian raids, as well as the dictatorial power of the Mexican government. These two factors led to resentment amongst the Anglos, and eventually, the displacement of the Tejanos by the Anglos at the top of the social and political ladder in Texas. The Anglo community believed that people who could not or would not defend themselves were unworthy of respect. They had no honor, and honor was a big thing in the early to mid-19th century, as it had been for centuries. All right, this is as good a place as any to stop for this episode. Next time, we will continue to explore the history of Texas leading up to the 1840s. As always, please feel free to email me any and all questions or comments, concerns, complaints, all that stuff. 
Um, the address is sean at the American History Podcast.com. If you are enjoying the show, please, 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 please leave us a review and or a rating on iTunes. Those ratings really do help others to find the show. Until next time, have a great day.